Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Short Stacks, our shorter conversations with authors about their process and their books. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and we are joined today by author and journalist Kim Brooks. We discuss Kim's second book, Small Animals, Parenting in the Age of Fear, which looks at the ways in which raising children and the anxieties that come with that have changed in the last 20 years. Everything we talk about on today's show can be found in the link in the show notes, as well as the links to the social media accounts of both Kim Brooks and The Stacks. If you love this show and want more of it, check out our Patreon page. You can support the work we're doing here and earn cool perks for yourself like our virtual book club. To learn more, go to patreon.com slash the stacks. I listened to Kim's book, Small Animals, as an audiobook, and it was fantastic. If you like what you hear today, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts. Okay, now it's time for my spoiler-free conversation with Kim Brooks about small animals. All right, everybody, I'm here today with author Kim Brooks. Kim's book is called Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear. The book came out about a year ago, but it just came out in paperback on August 20th. So if you haven't read it yet, make sure you run out and grab the book. Kim, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Tracy. So we always start in the same place on these episodes. Can you tell us about your book in about 30 seconds or so? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, Well, I would say (laughs) it's a hybrid between memoir and uh, cultural criticism and a parenting book all wrapped up in one. Uh, It's based on an incident or it began with an incident that happened to me about five years ago where I was arrested for letting my son wait in a car for about five minutes on a cool day. And it uses that experience as a jumping off point for me to explore larger issues about the changes in parenting culture, changes in the culture of childhood, um, anxiety, fear, and sort of how we raise um, small people into adults. And how was that? That was great. That was great. You're going to do great here. Don't worry. We're very low stakes around here. (laughs) Um, One of the things that really stuck out to me about that incident is that you ran into the store, you got your son his headphones, you came back, you left the store, you went on an airplane, you went home to Chicago, and then you found out 
that someone had called the police. Like it wasn't this whole big dramatic scene where you were like arrested and pushed up against the car. Like you were just living your life. You had no clue that what you had done was going to be this like huge nightmare. Right, exactly. And I mean, some of that is because the place where this took place, I I live in Chicago, but um, this took place in kind of rural suburban Virginia, um, which is where I'm from, and my parents still live there. And this is such a sleepy area in terms of just the kind of place where like literally nothing ever happens that I think it, you know, I I think my it, it just takes it took the police a long time to get there. It took them you know, 30 minutes to get there so that by the time um, they came, I was, I was like on my way to the airport. Um, I have, since I began writing the book and talking to other mothers who've had similar experiences, it does happen in other places where they'll literally come out of a store after three or four minutes or come out of the dry cleaners or whatever, and people will be blocking their car in or there will be a, a police car already there. But yeah, that was not the case for me. So aside from the event, which I think is like, you know, the catalyst for your book, obviously that's where you kind of came to the story and that's how you kind of came into this. You take the book in some really interesting directions having to do with parental anxiety, especially like in America. You take the book to, Mm -hmm. you know, some places that have to do with how men and women are perceived as parents and what, what responsibilities or risks are perceived by people like through men, through dads and moms or whatever that looks like. Um, And so I kind of wonder, like, when you started the book, did you have any idea where it was going to take you? Or did you think you were going to write a memoir about this, like, event that happened to you? Well, I knew that I wanted it to have a memoir, an element of memoir. And I knew I wanted to write about the event and also about some of my personal experiences as, as a mother. Um, but for me, I mean, I mean, the, the catalyst for sort of the larger concept of the book was not even what uh, happened to me, but what happened after I wrote about it in a, in an essay um, about two years after it happened, I wrote an essay for salon about the experience and um, after that was published, I started having all these other women reach out to me and contact me and tell me that <clears throat> the same thing had happened to them or something similar had happened to them. I also had had made a connection with Lenore Skenazy, who sort of founded the Free Range Kids Movement, and she told me that she was in touch with people all the time who, you know, had been shamed or arrested or someone called Child Protective Services because they'd left their kid for three minutes in the car or they'd let their kid walk to school or they'd let their kid play in the park by themselves. And so it was really, you know, it was really when that happened and I realized that this thing was not just a freak experience or, you know, a freak event that had happened to me, um, but a sort of wider trend of policing mothers and motherhood. Mm. I mean, parents also, but more often than not, it was mothers. Um, And that was when I really, that was what I wanted to write about as much as wanting to write about just the incident itself. Okay. So that was definitely like part of the reason that you wrote the book was like the, what had come to you, you were like, we have to be talking about this. Right. Exactly. Like how, and how, how did this happen? How did we get here? What exactly is happening um, that, our expectations around child safety and around parenting have changed so radically 
in just a generation or two? And what are the what are the consequences um, of it happening? Right. So you cast this kind of big net. Like I feel like if you think about the book, kind of like concentric circles, like yours being like the tiny dot, the one person experience, then you kind of find other mothers around you who have or who have come to you who have similar experiences. Then you kind of go take it out into the research and it gets bigger and bigger. So how did you know when you were done with the book? Like when did you when were you like, okay, I think I've said all the things that I've set out to say? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Um, You know, I think that I, one thing that made that easier is that, you know, I didn't really approach it as like, I'm making an argument, um, or I have an answer that I want to sort of present or an argument that I need to build for my reader. When I write nonfiction, it's much more uh, question based or um, inquiry based. Maybe that's because my background is as a fiction writer. You know, I, I was originally writing fiction and my first book was a novel. And so that's just questioning is much more a part of my process um, than argument. And, and so it wasn't like I had to, you know, I had to make an argument and then provide all the evidence. Um, and it wasn't just a narrative where I'm just, you know, telling like a, it wasn't just narrative nonfiction where like I was done when I got to the end of the story. So I guess, I don't know, I guess the answer is that I felt I was done when I had asked the questions that had been on my mind for a number of years as a mother um, and also just as a woman, as a feminist um, and as a, you know, someone who thinks a lot about culture. Right. That makes a lot of sense to me. So one of the topics that comes up that I was particularly just like became obsessed with, I'm not a parent, but I have a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the parental anxiety, which you talk about a ton in this book, and it kind of, I mean, I guess you probably can do a better job explaining it than I can. But from what I gathered, it was sort of like nowadays, especially in America, we spend so much time planning when we're going to have children. And we make this huge deal about like, after I do this, then I'm going to have kids. Or once I hit this threshold, then I'm going to have kids. And that by the time we have the kid, we've made the kid the most important thing ever possibly to ever happen to us. And so that kind of leads Mm -hmm. to this like parental anxiety. So I kind of wonder like how can American parents combat this? Or like how can we chill out a little bit about kids? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the first thing is that we need to – make it easier for people who want to have kids to to have them and to raise them. Mm. And, you know, politically, that means things like, you know, uh, maternity and paternity leave, universal um, child care, you know, better prenatal care, better health care for everybody, um, better, better public schools. I think, you know, it's just sort of a broader um, social network for raising kids. Um, so, so that it's sort of, because I mean, right now, one thing that was really interesting me to, for me to dis, um, discover personally, as I wrote the book is that in many ways, we've be, we've really become a low birth rate society. Mm. Um, if it weren't for, um, if it weren't for immigration, then we would be, we would be close to where like countries like Japan or Scandinavian countries are in terms of, you know, below replacement level. And I think a lot of that, that change um, has come because we've just made it so hard for many people to have kids. Um, 
to support them, you know, to pay. I think the, the average cost of daycare for an infant now is something like $17,000 a year. Oh my God. The average, I know, the average cost for a four-year-old in preschool is $14,000 a year. Um, and I mean, that's just, you know, that, that's just one thing. So I think that, um, yeah, I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, I, I think it does. I mean, I think that also speaks to something else that I, that came up for me reading your book was that a lot of your book, while you do kind of touch on um, some black and brown women who have had similar experiences to you and how like what a nightmare it became and their kids getting taken away and stuff, I did kind of wonder about like, you know, your experience versus other women and, you know, how, how typical is your experience to what might happen to someone from like a lower socioeconomic background or someone who's black or someone who's Latina. And so that does kind of also speak to that too, because, you know, if everybody could afford to have kids, maybe we could all just take a deep breath and enjoy our kids. Right. I mean, I think that, you know, like in the post post-World War II period where there was higher birth rate, the one thing that was good, I mean, I mean, the thing that's bad, obviously, is that it's not good for people to have children who don't want children. Right. But it's also sort of a double-edged sword because when fewer people are having children, I think we shift from a sense of sort of parenthood being a, a common experience mm. um, and something that everybody or most people are sort of invested in, in one way or another, invested in the future of children. We shift from that to children becoming sort of like uh, a lifestyle choice or something, you know, that either, you know, for, for uh, poor women, you know, they're considered like a burden or something that's irresponsible, um, you know, by conservatives. And then for, you know, people with more um, resources, it's sort of seen as this, this almost like a, a possession, like a beautiful possession you've mm-hmm. saved up for. And then, and then if, if it's sort of a luxury item or a possession or a luxury experience becoming a parent, then that means that nobody else is responsible for your child. That means that you can be blamed for, or you can blame yourself for anything that goes wrong. And it's, it's a very sort of isolating trend. I think it isolates parents, it isolates children, it isolates families. Right. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. 
If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of the Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. So one of the other things that comes up in your book um, is how kids are like getting anxiety and depression. And a lot of that you kind of posit comes from their lack of autonomy because, you know, people are calling the police on other people for having their kids play in a park. People aren't letting their kids play in the park. And so kids are less independent. They're staying home more. They've developed these social anxieties. So how can parents help their kids, you know, combat that? Like what can we be doing to get back to the good old days of kids running around in parks, going to the store. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I wish I could be more optimistic, but yeah. I think it's very hard for people to do individually because, you know, it's not like I can tell my kid, sure, go walk to the park yourself or go play out on the sidewalk. But if there aren't any other kids out there, then my kid doesn't want to be out there. It's right. boring, right? right. Um, and also, you know, if, if your kid is the only kid by himself in the park, then suddenly it seems like you're doing something wrong. Um, and it becomes more dangerous. You know, the more people you have doing it, when it's normalized, then it's a lot safer. Um, I mean, the, so the, the most promising thing, I think, is... Um, you know, for example, Lenore Skenazy runs something called the Let Grow Foundation, and, and she works with a psychologist named Peter Gray, who studied a lot about the impact of, like, play deprivation and lack of independence on children. And they do things where they go into schools, they go into neighborhoods, and they work with communities to try to integrate um, free time time into children's lives. And, and that seems more effective than just, the, you know, doing it individually. I mean, that said, I do think, I mean, I have tried to sort of make a conscious decision to give my son, for example, a lot of independence. Um, and I'm sure that people judge me for it. You know, I'm sure people, if they hear about, you know, he, he takes uh, public transportation by himself and he's has an incredible sense of direction. He's very, he's probably more competent at getting around than I am, honestly. Hmm. Um, 
but I'm, I'm sure there are people who, who would judge me for that or think that's not safe. And so I think it, you know, it takes, it takes a, a certain amount of kind of parents having the courage of their convictions, you know, and saying, well, I know what's right for my child. And if someone else doesn't like it or thinks I'm a bad parent, like that's fine. They can have their opinion, but I still have the right to do what I think is best for my kids. But then what do you say if someone calls the police on you again? Like what are, what are parents' rights in that situation? Yeah. Well, that's another problem, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, it's it's different, right? And it's different. um, It is different uh, if someone judges you and, you know, maybe says something nasty about you behind your back and if someone calls the police on you. And, you know, but the thing that's promising is that in terms of the legal percussions, there there does seem to be some progress there. I think two states have passed free-range kid laws that say, you know, you can't you cannot arrest someone and charge someone for giving their child a reasonable amount of independence. Um, there's, there seems to be some sort of pushback on the criminalization element. And so that's, you know, that's good. But um, yeah, I think the cultural, the cultural side is going to take longer take, and take more sort of community driven effort. Right. That's interesting though. Cause I feel like the shift has been so quick. Like I am 33, so I was growing up in the early 90s, and I really remember, you know, walking to school. I grew up in Oakland, California. I remember walking to school. I remember going to the store, and that's not that long ago, and that's like doesn't happen anymore. I live in LA now, and I never see kids outside without their parents. So like the shift has been quick, I feel. Anecdote. Yeah. And, and yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And one of the uh, cognitive scientists I interviewed named Barbara Sarneka sort of explained how that happened. And there was sort of a ne- negative feedback loop where what she, what she described was that, you know, when, when people would suddenly in the eighties, when there was a lot of coverage of like, there's kind of a moral panic around children. So there was so much coverage of child abductions and, um, just crimes being committed against children. I remember there was a 1986 survey um, of Americans and kid, stranger kidnapping, kidnapping by a stranger ranked number one as their concerns, their national concerns, and tied for second place was the threat of nuclear annihilation and the spread of AIDS. Oh, wow. um, so it gives you a sense. It gives you a sense of how, you know, how much this was on parents' minds, even though then, even then, and more so now, it was statistically so unlikely for a child to be kidnapped. I mean, uh, you would actually have to leave your child today in a public space for 750,000 years um, for them to be kidnapped by a stranger. Um, And, you know, before that happened, again, statistically, they'd be much more likely to be struck by lightning. So, you know, but there was, despite that, there was a ton of kind of coverage in the media and talk shows. And so suddenly it was on everyone's mind. And what, what um, Barbara Serneka observed is that when we think something is morally wrong, we tend to think it's dangerous. So it's not just that moral judgment follows risk assessment. Risk assessment also follows moral judgment. So suddenly people think it's riskier than it is to let kids go outside by themselves to be in public unaccompanied. And then when people see kids who are unaccompanied, they think, oh, that's, that's 
parent's wrong, that's a bad parent, which makes them think it's even riskier than it is. And it sort of forms this negative feedback loop, which creates very, very rapid social change. I'm going to shift us a little bit kind of to how this, how you wrote the book and how you write. But before I do, I love the title Small Animals. And I'm curious if there were other titles that you were working with before that one, or if you always kind of knew that's what you were going to call it. Well, I knew that I knew it was going to be small animals because that is sort of my pet name for my children. I call them my small, my small animals. I don't call them that anymore because they would kill me. They're too old. But when they were very small, I called them that lovingly. Um, There was more going back and forth on the subtitle, you know, and trying to get that just right. But yeah, the, the title is always with me. I love that. I think that's very funny. How long did it take you to write this book? Well, the actual book, like from the time I knew it was going to be a book until I was done, it was pretty quick. It was only about maybe six months, nine oh, months, wow. something like that, which for, for me is quick. But I, you know, I had sort of been writing it in pieces for a long time because there was the original essay that was published where it was kind of the kernel of the story. Um, and then I had been researching it. I had been talking to other parents, talking to... Uh, different experts for a long time um, and kind of sitting with the idea. So by the time I actually sat down to write the book, I feel like I had done a lot of the work. Right. And what sort of stuff were you reading yourself either as research or maybe as inspiration or just, I don't know, what, what were you watching, listening to while you were writing the book? If you remember, I'm sure that's a little bit ago. Yeah. I mean, well, for research, like I, I read some great histories of childhood in America. There's a book called Huck's Raft. Um, There's a book called The End of American Childhood that sort of gave these broad sociological views of, you know, how childhood and parenthood have changed. Um, But in terms of inspiration, I read very different sorts of books. I I think I was when my, my daughter was only like one or two that um, Jenny Ophel's book, Uh, Department of Speculation came out and I read that and I loved it. And I started reading, I read Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts um, and I started reading uh, Sarah Mangusa's book. And suddenly I was reading all these books um, kind of where really smart women writers writing about motherhood in a smart, critical, interesting way. And I had never really been exposed to that before. I mean, I feel like, you know, I I got my MFA from Iowa and when I was there, I learned a lot, but the things I read tended to be very male and very like masculine subjects. I mean, I remember just lots of people, a lot of people writing about baseball and and (laughs) baseball and war and alcoholism and not that alcoholism is a masculine subject, but, you know, and, and, and nobody had kids, you know, when I was there, one person in the class under me had a baby while she was there, but it was very, it was very rare for anyone to have a small child. I shouldn't say nobody had kids. There were people who were older students who had older kids, but nobody had small kids. And so I just, the idea that motherhood or parenthood could be a serious literary subject really didn't occur to me at the time. And when I had kids, I think I had this very naive idea that I could sort of compartmentalize or segment my life and my identity, that I was going to be a mother and that was going to be over here. 
and I was going to be a writer and that was going to be over there. And that these just would be two things that didn't have much to do with each other. And what happened then is that when I had kids, that did not work at all. I just realized it didn't work. I mean, I was, I was writing a novel. I mean, it took me like seven years to finish this novel and not just from a, you know, a time perspective, although that's of course, you know, a big component, but just also like, I don't know. I mean, I have to, I have to write what I'm obsessed with, what I'm interested in. You know, mm. I have to explore the questions that for, for me, you know, that I, I don't write, I think, you know, some writers maybe write as sort of an escape from life to immerse themselves in another world. I, I've never been very good at that. For me, writing is a way to try to understand what's going on in the world around me or what's going on in myself. And so when I had kids and of course, you you know, you have two kids under four and it's like, that's kind of what's on your mind a lot of the time. And so I needed to write about it. So those books by um, those kinds of women um, were very inspirational. I also read Pamela Druckerman. I don't, I didn't read that many parenting books, but I read Pamela Druckerman's um, Bringing Up Bebe. Oh yes. I've heard of this one. Yeah. I really loved it. I mean, uh, it's, it was just, it was smart and funny, but also, you know, very kind of anthropological and really interesting, you know, piece of journalism. So I enjoyed that. And about how you write or like where you write, what do you, where do you go? Do you stay in the house? Do you kick your kids out? Is that when you make your son go take the bus? <laughs> um, do you have special snacks? Do you have a ritual that you do? Like, how do you get yourself in your writing zone? Well, I think I'm one of the less disciplined writers that I know, honestly, okay. um, and even less disciplined since I've had kids. I tell people sometimes I write as little as possible. <laughs> like I, 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 I avoid writing until I feel like I'm actually going to go crazy if I don't write until, you know, until not writing becomes more painful than writing. Mm. So yeah, I'm definitely not one of these people who are like, oh, I get up at 6 a.m. and I write for five hours or eight hours. I mean, I hope I hope maybe to become like to push a little more in that direction as my kids get older. But um, the way it's been so far is just sort of doing a lot of thinking and a lot of note taking and a lot of reading, and then I sort of write in spurts when I have time. And I also am helped a lot by deadlines. I don't know mm. if I could ever finish anything if I didn't actually have deadlines. That's so interesting. I feel like I can relate to that when I'm editing this podcast. I'm like, oh my God, it's coming out on Monday. <laughs> like I need to get to that. I have to say though, I've interviewed quite a few authors now at this point, And I don't think anyone has ever told me I wake up at 6am and I write for five hours. I think everyone thinks they're undisciplined. And I think everyone has their own jam and the own, their own zone and the way that they do it. So I think it's interesting that you say that because you're definitely not the first to say, I don't have a thing. <laughs> Yeah, that is a well, that's a relief to hear. Yeah, yeah. you're not alone. Um, for people who love your book, or once they finish it and they love it and they think it's great, what else do you recommend to them that's kind of either in conversation with or in the same vein or, you know, in the same realm? Sure, yeah. And well, the thing that jumps to mind is Claire Dieter's books. Um, Love and Trouble is her most recent one. And, um, Poser is, is her earlier one. 
those are just really great kind of hybrid memoirs um, about motherhood and marriage and relationships and women. Um, and those were, those both influenced me very much too. And then there's just, I mean, there's a lot coming out. There's Sheila Hetty's book, Motherhood. I really loved about her decision to not become a mother. Yeah. I feel like there are a lot of books coming out now, or at least more books sort of taking this like critical look at motherhood as an institution or the experience of it. There's that book that I haven't read this one yet, but I've heard it's very good. Um, And now we have everything. Mm -hmm. um, It's a a memoir. So that's a, a few things that jump to mind. And then before we wrap up, I would be remiss not to ask you this. I'm sure I just have to imagine that you've received both positive and probably a lot of negative or pushback style feedback on your book. What's some of the pushback that you've gotten and have you agreed with it? Like, has there been stuff that's been brought to your attention where you're like, oh yeah, I could have done that better. Or is, or is there other stuff where you're like, leave me alone? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, the fortunate thing is that I feel like most of the negative pushback people do behind my back, which I appreciate. (laughs) Leave me out of it. Yeah, I've had people tell me, you know, like, oh, this person came up to me and, you know, said they thought, you know, you must be horrible. And I'm like, all right, that's fine. At least, you know, they didn't tell me directly. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I've read, you know, in some reviews and things. I I think, I mean, the, the one thing I can think of is that sometimes I think people will say that parts of the book feel a little bit defensive. Like, they feel like... Well, depending on the the person who's saying this, depending on their point of view, they'll either say she clearly made a bad decision and she's just trying to rationalize it. Or even if they don't think it was a bad decision, some people have said like that that parts of it feel like I'm trying to justify what happened. But I don't know. I mean, the truth is that, you know, at the time it was I, I tried to write it deeply point of view. So I was writing it, you know, three year, three or four years after the incident happened, at which point I learned a lot and I'd sort of come to understand, you know, what, what had occurred. But when I'm writing scenes from the time that it actually happened, the truth is I, I, I thought maybe I had done something terrible. I didn't know, you know, I'm, I'd never been charged with a crime before um, besides, you know, speeding. I'd never been arrested, you know, and so there was a part of me that thought maybe I've done something terrible. Maybe I am a bad mother. Um, and, and part of the process of writing the book was trying to understand if that was true. And if it wasn't true, if I was not a bad mother, but like most people, you know, an imperfect mother who's doing the best she can and loves her kids, then why had this happened and why was it happening to other people? Wow. That's really interesting. But, as like that you were writing it as you were reflecting or like writing that your reflection into the book, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, my last question for you is if you could have any one person, they could be dead or alive, read your book, who would you pick? Uh, just one, huh? Well, yeah, for the exercise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let me think. Um, you know what? I would maybe say Hannah Arendt actually, because, you know, I, I love her work and I uh, write about um, some of her ideas at the end of the book in, in her book, The Human Condition. And she talks about this idea of natality 
which is this concept that, you know, morally having children, bringing children into the world is this sort of redemptive process for civilization because it allows us to start again, so to speak, you know, to kind of in each generation to wipe away all of the mistakes and horrors of what's come before and, and try to try again, sort of in ethical, moral terms. And I just love that idea. And I feel like maybe I was holding part of that in my mind as I wrote. So mm. I would give it to her, I think. That's lovely. I love that so much. Um, thank you, Kim, so much for being here today. Make sure you guys run out and get her book. Now you have an option. You can do paperback or hardcover, or you can listen to it, which I listened to some of the book and you read it and it's fantastic. It's a great audiobook. So you have lots of options. Um, it's called Small Animals by Kim Brooks. Kim, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And we will see you guys in the stacks. Thank you for listening to The Short Stacks, and thank you again to Kim Brooks for joining us. I also want to say a special thank you to Amelia Pozanza at Flatiron Books for setting up this interview. Everything we talked about today can be found in the show notes. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media, at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join The Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show and more, go to patreon.com slash thestacks. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagiragis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 